Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. May God bless the reading of his word. I don't know if you guys felt the tension that I felt a little bit over the holiday, but there's a tension in Thanksgiving when you take a look at the food that's in front of you and the size of your plate. <laughs> and you start to do some, uh, some math, some proportioning on the plate size to think about all these things and how much of that will fit and how do I need to proportion it so that I make sure that I get the stuff I want in a proportional size that I want on my plate. So you want to make sure that you pick and choose the right kind of things. There's some things you're going to be like, don't need that. Uh, I'm going to pass through that one. Most of those would be like, that's the green stuff, the vegetables. You go right for the mashed potatoes. You know, you make sure you keep room for dessert, all those kind of things. And you, you pick and choose in feasts to make sure that what you have on your plate matches kind of what you want and desire that is best for you and your taste buds. So there's this options that you have for each and every plate. And my fear is that perhaps some of us think about community like that. As it's something that if we think about the plate of our lives, it's something that we can kind of pick and choose from. We can leave depending on our tastes for that week or even just in general. It's an optional thing for us. But I think that the reality is that community in terms of biblical Christianity is not an option. One author says that we should not think of our fellowship with other Christians as a spiritual luxury, an optional addition to the exercise of private devotion. We should recognize, rather, that such fellowship is a spiritual necessity. Uh, perhaps you have a, a similar background as me, where, where I feel like I understood very early on that, that your personal relationship with God is primary. Right? That was pounded in. You need to have a personal relationship with the Lord, and perhaps to the neglect of life in community. And yet, Scripture would say that, yes, you need to have a relationship with God. Jesus has made that uh, uh, open and available to us by his life and death and resurrection, but the life that he invites us into that's reconciled to him is a life that's also reconciled to others. It's a life in community. It's necessary to have community. It's a clear priority for those of faith. It's not an add-on. It's not a bonus. It's not some option. It's part of life with Christ. It's just a part of it. God calls his people into relationship, into fellowship, into sharing life with one another, into relationship with himself. And, and because he has us in relationship with himself, that necessitates life with others. First John chapter 1, verse 3, John is writing to them, and he says, we are writing and we are telling you these things that we've seen and heard and touched so that you could have fellowship with God. And our fellowship with God is also fellowship with one another. He says that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father. 
works community, life together, fellowship with other believers is part of life with Christ. It is God's gracious invitation into life with his people, and it's a powerful means of grace for us. It's a place where we are cared for and protected under God's care and protection. It's a place where we carry out ministry with one another. It's a tool that God uses for our holiness and the holiness of others, and it's a part of our message as believers. You remember that they will know that you are Christians by your love. And so an actual essential part of the message is community, life together. And it's a priority in the book of Acts as well. Believers in the book of Acts early on in the church, they're committed to fellowship and to sharing life with one another in community. So as the church begins to take shape in Acts chapter 2, believers, they, they make room for life with one another and you start to see them share that life. First, they make room. After the ascension of Jesus in chapter 1, in verse, in verse 1, 15, in chapter 1, verse 15, you see that there's about 120 believers now, 120 people that are faithful to Jesus, that trust in Jesus, but that changes dramatically in chapter 2. I'm going to back us up to chapter 2, verse 41, to show us how dramatically things change for that small, tight-knit group of 120 Verse 41 says, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. How do you go from 120 to 3,120 in, in just moments? I mean, that's the power of the gospel. Peter opened his mouth, he, he proclaimed the gospel, and 3,000 were transformed, they were saved, and they were added that day. That's the power of the gospel. And this gospel that was received by these 3,000 people also formed them. Notice in verse 41 that they, were, they received his word, they were baptized, and they were added. Or in verse 47, the people, they were praising God, they were having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number. Day by day, those who were being saved. There was an adding. In other words, they were counted. They were added onto something, and what they were added onto was to the community of believers that were present. There's, in a sense here, an implied membership role that's going on. They counted them. They added them to that. And this is presented as the natural flow or natural result of their salvation. You notice they were saved, they were baptized, and added. And then as they went together, it's the natural flow, the natural result of their salvation. The same thing is found in Acts chapter 4. Very similar passage, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. It says, now the full number of those who believed, again, there's a number, they're actual people, and here's what they were. They were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of his things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, so they were saved and they were together as a number holding things in common. They believed and then they became one. And this is the, the story that we see throughout the book of Acts. Paul, he goes out, preaches the gospel, and what happens as the result of his proclamation of the gospel, churches are planted. It's the natural overflow. The, the natural flow is that churches are planted. Not just that individuals spring up and then go do their own mission. They do this together. They form things together. They have churches that actually gather and are organized, and Paul sets about making sure that they're gathering and organizing in the right kinds of ways. In Acts chapter 15, this is the chapter we looked at last week. In Acts chapter 15, they, they talk through the gospel and, and what do we need to do with Gentiles and how do we need to handle this, and they end up writing a letter. And here's what they do in, in chapter 15, verse 30. They send some people off with the letter, 
And they were sent off, and they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together. In other words, they, they knew who they were as the congregation, and the congregation had some, they knew who they were too. They, they had some, they know their identity. They are the congregation. And so when they're calling together the congregation, the people knew who they were. There was a number that was there. Or in Acts chapter 20 from Paul, again, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he says in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In other words, you know who the flock is, you know who they are, you know what that group of people is, and they know you. So make sure you take care of them and protect them and provide for them in the right kind of ways. There's an implied membership back and forth there. And one commentator says that Jesus did not add them to the church without saving them. We find this in Acts chapter 2. There's no nominal Christianity at the beginning. Nor did he save them without adding them to the church. There's no solitary Christianity either. Salvation and church membership, they belong together. They still do. God has always been after not salvation of an individual, but after a people. He, he doesn't just save Noah from the flood. He gets Noah and his family. He calls Abraham to be the father of nations. Like he's saving a people. He calls and picks a nation. Like he's always saving a people. And the consistent New Testament pattern is that the gospel goes forward. People receive it. They receive salvation. And then they're formed into community. And this community... We know as the church, it's the New Testament community of believers that are in different locations, local churches. And the believing community in the early part of Acts goes from 120 to 3,120 quickly. It's a big change. It's a very drastic change. I mean, if some of you are kind of change averse, and you, you have 120, and then all of a sudden you're, you have to figure out what do we do with 3,000 more? That, that's that's big deal. They go from meeting in an upper room, that's where they were in chapter 1, verse 15, when it says that they were all together, this 120, they're in an upper room, to now all of a sudden you have 3,000. They're not fitting in an upper room anymore. Now all of a sudden they have to meet in Solomon's portico, that's where they kind of meet corporately after that. So 120 of them, they had to make room for 3,000. They have to make room physically, we have to actually, we can't stay in this nice upper room that we really, we've situated and arranged the best way, where we all have our assigned seats. And we know each other really well, and I know every face, and I've talked to every person. I mean, they have to change that physically. They have to make room relationally. Now, all of a sudden, our tight-knit group of 120 that we know that we're already believing before all this stuff with the Spirit came, like we, we were committed to Jesus. Now, all of a sudden, we've got to add all these, this, who knows where these people have come from and how much, what they even think about Jesus at this point. They don't know so little, and we've been around so long. They, they had to make room relationally. They had to open up their lives in physical and relational ways. They had to sacrifice. They had to make adjustments. They had to change their assigned seat when they came together. They had to welcome in a large group into the family of believers. And here's what they didn't do. They didn't idolize that 120. It's so easy to do, right? They didn't idolize that group of 120 and all that entailed physically. They didn't say, you know what? We have to stay here. This is, the, this is our room. This is our church. They didn't say, you know what? 120 is a pretty big number, I, I barely know all of you guys, so we can't add any more. They didn't do that either. 
They didn't do it physically or relationally. They, they let those things go. And these believers in this way, I think, are an example of their willingness to welcome, to make room for new people. They have a willingness here to just receive what God has placed in front of them. Now, that's what happens. They had no idea when Peter opened his mouth that 3,000 were going to be saved. And yet, what do they do? They just make room for what God had done. God does this. He had placed them in front of him, so they just make room in their lives. Clearly and divinely, God had placed 3,000 in front of them. And for us to do the same, we must be willing to lay down some things if we're going to receive what God wants to put in front of us or what's already in front of us. Often the first thing that needs to go if we're going to just receive rightly the things that God has put in front of us is our ideal vision of community. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his excellent little book, Life Together, has written of. He calls it a wish dream. He says this, Innumerable times a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream, which is, he kind of defines here, a very definitive idea of what Christian life together should be, and they try to realize it. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. In other words, we have to be willing to love the community that's actually in front of us more than what our idea of that community should be or look like, more than our dream of community. If there's areas in our lives where we're kind of uncomfortable with or groaning over or alienated from actual community, then the first thing that we probably should examine is our dream, our ideal vision of community, and see if that might not be the primary problem area and not community itself. So often we're quick to jump to saying that the problem is the community when we first need to examine to see if the problem is in our ideal of community, our wish dream being imposed on a community in a way that they can never live up to. We need to lay down our ideal community in exchange for what God has actually placed in front of us. And what he places in front of us in terms of community is, is called the local church. It's just the people that we're looking around at. That's what God has placed in front of us. And the reality is, is that wish dreams or our ideal visions of community, they will shatter or they will be shattered. They will shatter by placing expectations and demands on others that they could never live up to. That they will certainly disappoint, that they cannot endure. Reality is not going to match the ideal. You know this in almost every single relationship, but so often we fail to apply it to community. Like the reality there is that we're sinners in relationship with other sinners. It's not going to look great all the time. And what we do is if we impose our ideal on that is we're going to shatter other people. There's going to be fractures. There's going to be all sorts of harms that happen to the community and to the dreamer itself as he thinks like, well, I thought this is what it was supposed to look like, and they're shattered themselves. Wish dreams will shatter, or they will be shattered. And that is they will be shattered by God as he graciously allows us to be in real Christian community. Because real Christian community can be ugly, messy, troublesome, full of worry. All those things can be present. It can be uncomfortable. It can be and it will be less than ideal at times. But God is the one who needs to graciously shatter our vision of community. The church and Christian community is God's idea. And it's his establishment. 
This is what he does. He has established it, and he makes it for all those that he redeems. And so what he does when he brings us into it is he works graciously and lovingly to shatter our idea of community in replacing it with what's actually in front of us. Those that he's redeemed and worked in and placed in front of us. He graciously works to conform our hearts to his, and he loves his people, messy and broken and have all these wrong ideas of what community looks like. He loves them there in those places. He helps us become disillusioned with our dream and to love real community that he puts in front of us. Bonhoeffer sums up this way. He says that when the morning mists of dreams vanish, then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. And 120 had to let their dreams fall to the wayside. Surely, you don't, you don't see this, there's not details given this, surely dreams are being shattered all over the place as this 120 looks at this crowd of 3,000 and, and baptizes them and adds them into their number and tries to figure out, well, what does life look like together now? Probably didn't look like what they thought, but a bright day of fellowship had dawned, a day that was full of then the sharing of life. You see, the most prominent response we see to the 3,000 by this 120 was this dual devotion that they have. Look in verse 2, or verse 42, rather, of chapter 2. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. There's dual devotion going on here. And this devotion, this dual devotion, is it's not competitive with one another. It's not one devotion fighting over another, but they're very complementary. It's to devotion to God and devotion to one another. They're devoted to God and that they have this word that is spoken to them. They, they listen to their teaching. They're devoted to one another and that they're devoted to fellowship. Now, devoted is a word that, that speaks of, of constancy. Like they are in constant thought of these things. It's used in chapter 1, verse 14, when it says that they were in this upper room and they were constant in prayer. In chapter 6, verse 4, we talked about this when we, we had these, this problem going on within the early church and they had to figure out a way to address the physical needs of the body. And one of the things they said is, the, the apostle says, we need to devote ourselves to the word of God in prayer. We need to be constant in those kind of things. And so we need others to help raise up to serve tables. It's the same word that's used in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, that says, be constant in prayer. Or in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, where it says, continue steadfastly. That's the word devoted. It's, it's a continuation. It's, it speaks of that continued constancy in their lives. And the four things that they were devoted to is a pretty good blueprint for any church. It says in 42 that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That is the word of God. They were devoted to it. Listening, hearing it, giving themselves to it, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. That is, we think, at least in 42, it's the, the Lord's Supper, the, the ordinance that God had given to their people to remember his sacrifice and their unity with him by faith and to prayer. So it's a great blueprint for any church. In verse 46, the prayers are also day by day attending in the temple together. And they're also breaking bread now, all these elements that are listed are essential, but they show their devotion. There's devotion to God and devotion to one another. Now, here's one thing that I think that's implied that could be easily miss, missed if we just read through this quickly, is that there's, there's an implied element to their, their life together, and that is that they are actually together. There's implications that they are together. For these elements to happen, they had to actually gather 
In verse 46, day by day they were attending the temple together. They were there. They were actually gathering. They were actually together. They gathered in large groups. They met in smaller groups. They met in homes. But make no mistake, they were assembled. One can't be devoted to fellowship, to share life with other believers and not actually be together. Church is an assembly at least. And that's the very definition of the word. It's, it's more than that, but it's certainly not less than an actual assembly. You see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul speaks of, to the church at Corinth, and what does he say in chapter 5, verse 4? When you are assembled, be, because they were, that's what they did. That's what the New Testament church of God did. Or in chapter 11, there's this repeating of when you gather, when you gather. I'll read one from chapter 11, verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give you directions when I come. So he's going to gather with them. Or we know the, the famous verse in, in Hebrews chapter 10 of making sure that you gather together, not neglecting to what? Meet together. Or chapter 12, verse 23, he's speaking of, of how we have come to a different Thing than what the Old Testament saints had come to, but it's an assembly. Look at chapter 12, verse 23. He says, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. He says, this is the assembly that we've come to and that we actually reflect in our own gatherings, or in James chapter 2, verse 2. This is the problem with partiality, and he says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your what? Your assembly. That is the New Testament people of God, the, the church, they assembled. They are actually together. And there is no substitute for this assembling. The church assembles because community is a priority, because community matters, because it's part of their life with Christ. And so they're devoted to fellowship, to sharing life with one another. And at least part of that includes by being together. So here is what Acts chapter 2 shows us, is that they shared their physical lives with one another. In verse 43 through 45, it says, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, when we read the book of Acts, we have to be careful oftentimes of, of determining what is prescriptive for us today and what is descriptive. In other words, what is the author just telling us this is how it was, and what is the author saying this is how it should be, this is how churches should pattern their lives as well. Now, some of this right here is, is just descriptive, not prescriptive, right? We think about that with the, the signs. There's, there's no promise, there's no command, there's, there's even no pattern of the church making the, all these signs that the apostles were doing in the book of Acts happen all the time, right? So that one doesn't seem to be prescriptive. Or even the uh, selling everything you have, and giving all your materials to others. There's no prescription, I think, there for some sort of Christian socialism, right? That is not the pattern of the church from that point on. You don't, you don't see that. In fact, Ananias and Sapphira, they have an issue in chapter 5, and part of their issue wasn't that they didn't sell everything and give it all away. It was that they, they lied about it. They, they sold some, they kept some back for their own, which was totally okay, except for that they lied about it. All right, here in, in chapter Two, we have verse 46 where they're, they're meeting in their own home. So not everybody sold everything that they had. So there's some description here and there's some prescription. 
Some of it is prescription, some of it description. But here's what's evident. Here's some prescription that there's an evident others first mentality present as part of their fellowship. Their, their fellowship has among them all these people that are looking outward toward the needs of one another, towards the needs of others around them. They're enough so that they're willing to share their material goods, sell their things if they need to, so that needs are met. And that commitment is to mark all Christian fellowship. In the book of Philippians, we're told to have a certain kind of attitude and mind among us. The book of Philippians tells us what that's to be. In chapter 2, verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. That's to mark people who have participation in the Spirit. That is, those who have actually been saved, regenerated by the work of God. Or we could look to Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. He says, do good to all. The Christians are to be good to all, but especially those of the household of faith. Especially those who have been welcomed into the family and have received the Spirit of of God, or we could look to 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. It says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And that's going to include even some physical things. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You know what's implied in all of those? There's some implied community life, that they're actually sharing life with one another, enough to see needs, to know needs, and be able to meet those needs with their worldly goods. The physical things were enough and out there so that people could know them because they lived life together. For physical needs to be known, or for them to be met, they must be known. And there are kind of two sides to this, right? There's two, two ways to this street. Right, there's the knowing. In other words, there's, there's Christians lovingly pursuing others and getting into their life so that they could know if there were some physical needs. They were trying to pursue and know if there were some needs that they could meet. And there's also the flip side of, of being known, of, of being open, honest, vulnerable, even with what's going on, even physically in our lives so that others could know. And so the question is, do others actually know of our physical well-being or of our willingness to meet physical needs? Now, that should be part of community, life together with one another. These believers in Acts chapter 2, they saw their possessions, not as just things to be consumed, to be used on their own lives. They, they saw them as something that they could be used for good. So they gave generously, sacrificially for the good of others, to meet others' needs, because they didn't see goods as something that were just for them. They looked out for the interest of others. And the question is, when they're selling all this stuff and they're meeting needs, is what can fuel this? Well, that's a pretty tall task to say, well, you know what? You have something that you need. I'm going to sell this, and I'm going to give it to you. And that's quite the sacrifice. What could fuel this? Well, in chapter 2, what has happened up to this point? Chapter 1 and 2 in the book of Acts? There's not a long history of them developing a relationship with one another. The only thing that's happened is that they've heard the gospel and received it. So the only thing that's fueling their life together at this point is the gospel itself. God's grace has met them in their brokenness, in their sin, and it's changed them. 
And it's not just changed their relationship with God, it's changed their relationship with others. It's changed their relationship with their very things that they own, their goods. They, they have a different outlook with life now, with how they're going to handle their lives and how they're going to spend their money. In other words, God's grace comes in and they received it gladheartedly. They understood that their salvation didn't come from themselves. They didn't earn it. They didn't achieve it. It was graciously given to them. And so they became glad-hearted recipients. And when God's grace interrupts life, it opens up our eyes to the reality that everything we have is from God, not just salvation. In him, we, we live, we move, we have our being. We have everything from him. It's none of our own doing. And when you're opened to the, the reality of grace, then all of a sudden you start seeing everything else rightly. Amen. And what this grace does is it's, it begets giving. It, it turns those who are turned inward outward. Those who know they haven't earned anything from God, that they haven't deserved anything but his judgment and have received so much differently, are those who are the generous sacrificial givers. Right? One author says that we can only hold loosely what we know was not ours to begin with. And that's understanding grace in the right way. Or, there's no shortcut here, we cannot give what we don't have. And we can't have it if we don't receive it. 1 Corinthians 4 says, what do you have that you didn't receive? Nothing. Nothing. So before we can be generous givers, we must first be grateful receivers. Open-handed generosity flows from glad-hearted reception. The only thing that these believers had done at this point in Acts chapter 2 has been glad-hearted recipients of what God was doing. He granted them salvation. His grace entered into their lives, and all of a sudden they turn and they're generous to others. They've moved and started seeing everything from God's hand. And now their generosity is flowing from their glad-hearted reception. And so while their way to give, the way that they give, may not be prescriptive for the church, their gospel-fueled sharing of physical needs with one another is prescriptive. But they don't just share their physical needs and their physical life. The gospel-fueled lives that they're sharing is also a gospel-fueled Sharing of spiritual life. Look in verse 46. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We add that with verse 42, where it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. And we know that what was central to their life together, to their fellowship, to their Christian community, was worship. It was central to them. They gave themselves and directed their lives together to the Lord. The apostles' teaching, to prayer, to the Lord's Supper. They did this, and they didn't just do it when they attended a, a corporate gathering, though they did attend corporate gatherings. They also had small group gatherings. They were more than just weekly meetings. They were day by day. They even shared meals together. I mean, just all these different times. And what are they doing? They're directing their lives, even spiritually, with one another to God. And prominent in every single one of these is worship. They have joy. They have awe. There's praising. There's prayer. There's teaching. There's giving. And there's also glad receiving. There's sharing meals. It's obvious that their shared spiritual life was deeper than something that we often think about. They're sharing life together, directed toward the Lord, lived before his face and before one another. Their shared spiritual life was deeper than just being around good people. 
their fellowship was more than just activity-based friendships, activity-based life together, punctuated by some brief conversations. And yet, again, my fear is that too often, that's how we view community. That's how we view the church. It's easy to see church as just another way to be around good people and to call that community. It's easy and entirely possible to have activity-based friendships kept up by just brief conversations and call that fellowship. But that is not what we see from the church in Acts chapter 2. It's not the pattern and prescription given to us as believers. If we're going to live life in Christ, we live all of that life. We live it together with one another, and it's not just activity-based. It's not shallow. There's some depth there. Biblical community is a true sharing of life together. That is, the good and the bad are all there. The ugly, it's all there in front of us because the gospel is true. We share our physical needs and our spiritual needs and our our physical lives and our spiritual lives with one another because, again, the gospel is true. When there's nothing to earn, when there's nothing to prove, when there's already acceptance granted and given in Jesus, when you already belong, then all of a sudden you're freed up to live life in community, to share life with other believers. You're free to share what's the deepest and truest and most important to you. What is everything to you, you're free to share that. Why? Because with other believers, you're sharing what's most deepest and truest and most important to them too. The the community, biblical community, is all of us saying together that Jesus is everything to me, and we're all saying that together. It's everything to you too, and so we have a way that we can lean in on one another in that. He's everything to us. You're free to share that, what's most deep about you, the truest thing about you, that your life in Christ, because you know that you belong in Him. You're not looking for that what's deepest and truest and most essential to your life to be accepted by others. You already have your acceptance in God, and so you're free to live life in community. You're free to share that you have needs, sometimes physically, all the time spiritually. We're free to be able to share that we need one another and to be reminded by others that Jesus is everything to us again because We have gospel amnesia where we forget that we are accepted and belong with God, not because of anything that we've done, because of God's free gifts. When we realize the gospel, all of a sudden then we're now free to live life in community. And we should live life in community because when we're saying that we need to share life, it truly is shared. God hasn't saved individuals. He saves a people. And this fellowship that we're talking about, this shared life, this biblical community, it happens in the context of specific locations with specific people. In other words, when we talk about biblical community, it's not just a wish dream and an idea that's out there. It's faces and places. It's warm bodies and warm homes. It's people that we can look around and see and touch and speak to. And it's a priority, a necessity, a gracious invitation for all believers. And there's no doubt when we look through the scripture that our life with Christ is meant to be a life lived out with other believers in community. God didn't save us as individuals. He didn't save us and then rapture us, take us into heaven. He saves and he forms into community. That is the New Testament pattern. And church, one way that God gives us to remind us that our life as believers is to be life together in community is seen a couple times here in Acts chapter 2, is that they were giving themselves to the breaking of bread. At least part of that includes giving themselves to taking the Lord's Supper regularly. 
part of our life together is a reminder that we don't do this alone. We do this together. And God gave us a a sacred symbol, an ordinance, something to remind us that our life in Christ is life that we live together. We take from a common cup, although not now, and we take the individual little cups now, because we're together on this. We take from a common loaf of bread and we have it torn off from that common loaf because we take this as a family. We're meant to do this together. It's a family meal. And it reminds us that our life as believers is life with Christ, but also life with others. One says it this way, that the marks of the church include not only the gospel word, but also the gospel sacraments or ordinances, if you don't like sacrament. And those embodied acts, think about that, embodied acts, require an embodied community. They bind us to specific people in specific locations. So church, if you've trusted in Christ, if you, have, if you can say that Jesus is everything to me, then the invitation is to be reminded of that again, how he gave his life for yours, how through his death, Through his resurrection, you are united with God, reconciled to God, have life with God, and that that life with God is also a reconciliation with others, that that's life together with others. So if that's you, if Jesus is everything to you, then then you can take this meal and look around and confess with others that Jesus is everything to you, because that's the confession. The confession here as we come to the table is that we've been welcomed in by Jesus, that it's his work and his body and his blood that has paid the price for us, but that we don't just say, he did this for me, but he did this for us. He's everything to us. So if you're a believer, I want to invite you to the table with others, with us. To be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf. If you're, if you're not a believer, and you don't understand biblical community and, and fellowship, then we want to invite you in to that community by saying you, you need Jesus first. Repent and believe in him, and then we'd love to welcome you into the family, the community where we can share life together. Well, let's pray together before we take this meal. God, I cannot help but feel ashamed and convicted of sin when I see the generosity of the early believers, um, when I see how they gave of themselves physically and were willing to make massive financial sacrifices so that they could take care of each other. And it seems to hit at a time of year when, uh, when we think about money and going above and beyond and being generous, we're thinking more about gifting ourselves and the people around us and uh, buying presents, great deals, uh, things that we don't need when we already have everything. But, uh, and we do that out of love. It's not a sin to give each other gifts, but uh, man, it's radical to see the way that they lived, that it was totally others-centered, and I often don't look at my money that way, like it's yours and not mine, and like it might benefit someone else better, and so I repent of that, and, and I think we also, probably many of us need to repent
of the way that we've not been generous with ourselves, with our bodies, with our time, in spiritual ways when it comes to fellowship in the church. And it seems like every thing we hear in the news is telling us to stay home, don't get together, don't go to Thanksgiving. And when we do, people are getting sick. It's real. Uh, man, I miss people. I am frustrated when home group is canceled and we're not able to get together and confess our sins to one another and study your word together, and we, and we need that. And God, some of us in this room need it really bad, don't have any place where someone really knows who they are and they can come together with other believers and say, Jesus is everything to me. I'm not trying to impress you, so here's the junk that's in my life. Here's my misery. Here's my hell. Will you please pray for me? It's not your intention, God, that we live the Christian life alone and without someone knowing us deeply. God, we ask that you would change us, that you would help us to get over ourselves and give of ourselves more freely, our time, our bodies, our money. And Jesus, you are our ultimate example of this. You left heaven. You left ultimate glory and comfort. And you came to this earth and you put on skin and you walked with us for our good to rescue us from hell and death and guilt and shame and domination by sin. You set us free from all of those things, but you came down here to do it, and you got messy, and you got body to body with us. You're our example of considering the needs of others more important than our own. So as we remember how you gave your body and shed your blood for us, God, we're so thankful. But we also want to imitate you. We rejoice in our salvation, but we also need to follow you. We need to obey your commands and loving our neighbor as much as we love ourselves is the hardest thing I can think of to obey. We love ourselves so much. God, change our hearts. Let us break free from the sin of selfishness and pride and give us a true love for our brothers and sisters that reflects the love that you have for us, Jesus. Thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for raising from the dead. God, thank you for accepting the sacrifice of your son so that we can be your sons and daughters too. In your name I pray, amen.